Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you subscribe and leave favorable reviews. Our guest today is Kevin Williamson, who's the author of several books. His latest is The Smallest Minority, Independent Thinking in the Age of Mob Politics. Kevin, welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks. So your book uh, on the cover, uh, you can definitely see a Twitter bird, multiple of them, a, a whole flock, as it were. That is perhaps an indication of the topic, if the subtitle was not enough and just keeping up with current events. But for our listeners, maybe you could summarize the general uh, gist or thesis of the book. Yeah, so... Um... You know, there's a kind of a modern proverb that you give as advice to people who are complaining about sitting in traffic, which is that when you're sitting in traffic, you're not in traffic, you are traffic. And uh, when you are flowing through a sewer like Twitter, you're not in sewage, you are sewage. And uh, Twitter, social media, and the entire mode of conversation and discourse that they cultivate and encourage brings out really the uh, the worst in us and our politics and our culture and our civic discourse because they're not really about conversation. Uh, conversation is kind of um, an instrument for these things, but it's not really what they're about. They're about playing these little petty status games from the middle school cafeteria lunchroom tables. And um, that is kind of really what the book is about, the ways in which people who have discovered new forms of loneliness in the modern connected world, go to social media and other venues of electronic tribalism, looking for something to belong to, looking for a sense of meaning, uh, looking for a sense of context for their lives, which they won't actually find there, but they'll find a kind of rough facsimile of it that may suit them for a short period of time until they figure out that it's essentially deficient and hollow. So you're hardly uh, alone in describing Twitter as a sewer. In fact, it seems to be a recurring pastime of people on Twitter to complain about how horrible Twitter is. Uh, I know that I have engaged in this myself from time to time. What do you think it is about Twitter as a medium or perhaps some of the – I don't know if your critique would also apply equally to some of the other social media platforms like Facebook or Instagram. Uh, not just social media, also talk radio and uh, most cable news commentary mm. and all these, you know, gump platforms for uh, people to engage in their embarrassing, weird little public group therapy sessions. Yeah, podcasts. Well, you know, podcasts are actually, I think, one of the um, one of the better uh, media for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, podcasts either tend to be solo affairs in which people are talking about their own views at their own pace and their own way. Or they tend to be conversations between people who are engaged in recurrent conversations who actually know each other. So, or who work together regularly, like Charlie and I do on Mad Dogs and Englishmen, or like you guys do on this podcast, or, or people do on some of the other better podcasts. So, one of the problems with uh, the way social media works is that it's not built on underlying genuine, genuine social relationships. It's built on these, uh, you know, kind of fake relationships. Um, that are part of an information exchange. So people go to Twitter, people go to Facebook, things like that, because they want to be paid attention to. So that is the uh, payment you get for participating in this economy. The uh, 
payment you make to participate in this economy is the attention you pay to others. So essentially, it's an information barter. It's an information exchange. And the genius, I think, of these companies is that they took the natural human insecurity and anxiety about status and quantified it. You know, you have this many followers, you have this many friends, uh, you got this many likes, this many retweets, that sort of thing. And this quantified uh, version of status, I think, is really, really very compelling for certain people, especially those who don't have uh, satisfactory real world relationships. And that's one of the reasons why this stuff, this tribalism of politics is really getting worse in our time than it was in earlier decades is, um, I think, because people tend to put off things like marriage and parenthood. Not all of us, but some of us move more often. We change more jobs than we, we change jobs more often than we used to. Fewer people go to church. So a lot of these, you know, kind of local family, community, civic, religious ties that used to give people a sense of belonging and meaning and relationship to one another have either been diminished or in some cases taken away entirely. And so people have turned to this tribalistic, hysterical, and strangely conformist model of politics that isn't really about politics as it's conducted on social media to try to fill in some of these spiritual, intellectual, and social gaps for themselves. Yeah, Kevin, you're at, at times in the book, your tone can be brutal at times, and it, it, sometimes it makes me blush thinking that Catherine Jean Lopez is going to read this. <laughs> but, you, but you made a really interesting point that in a different context, I think would have been really optimistic. And I think the line was, the masses have never had it so good. This is the this is the best of times, not the worst. Yeah. Explain that either the, the irony of that or maybe how disingenuous this is that people have it so good, yet they're acting like we're just bouncing from crisis to crisis. Well, this is part of a pattern that we see in history. And uh, if you, you read the book, you know, I'll talk about Eric Fromm and his observations about the end of the Middle Ages. So I'll just start there. So at the end of the Middle Ages, the beginnings of what we really think of as capitalism and modernism, you see a number of changes in the way people live economically and socially, which had to do with the return of things like trade between communities and countries, uh, the return of money economy, which had more or less disappeared in Europe during the Middle Ages. Um, so people undergo these social and economic changes, which make them better off in real terms. They get to eat more than they did before, better food, they're better housed, they're better cared for. They also start to get more political rights and more political freedom along this time. So life gets better for people across Europe on just you know, really every measurable criterion. But it also makes people really, really upset and nervous and anxious because with the end of the Middle Ages came the end of feudalism. And feudalism had provided people with a fixed and predictable system of status hierarchies. You knew where you belonged. Your status was fixed. It had to do with your relationship to the land. You were a serf or you were a lord and you were a serf of this manner or a serf of that manner or a lord of this manner or a lord of that manner. So even as people got off, got better off in uh, material terms, they had this strange, very powerful social reaction to the changes that left them anxious about their status relative to other people. And that's a really uncomfortable thing for most people. Status anxiety can really drive people in a strong way. So Fromm makes the argument that sort of sets, uh, sets Weber on his head, which is not that uh, Protestantism created capitalism, but that capitalism created Protestantism with the emergence of these new economic forms and their disruption of old social relationships came new kinds of religious fanaticism, the beginnings of what would eventually be known as nationalism, 
other kinds of uh, movements that gave people a new sovereign to submit to, a new source of meaning and belonging and relationship. Now, what we're going through right now with what we call, for lack of a better term, globalization, is not comparable in uh, drama or in the scale of change to the end of the Middle Ages and the emergence of, uh, uh, of modernity, but globalization follows this pattern to an extent in that it makes people around the world better off in real material terms, but it also disrupts a lot of longstanding relationships and a lot of longstanding modes of life. So you think of people of my father's generation, you know, people who were finishing up high school or college in the middle to late 1950s. A lot of those guys, like my dad, worked for one or two companies their entire lives. Uh, their lives were very predictable. They normally didn't move very much. They didn't think about moving very much. It didn't come up. Um, whereas if you are someone getting out of college right now, you'll probably have, the prediction goes, something like 25 to 40 employers over the course of your life. You'll have 10 or more of them before you are uh, 30 years old or 32 years old, I forget the study. Anyway, there's a lot more churn, a lot less predictability. And people don't like that lack of predictability, especially when it comes to their social relations and their, and their social status. And I think that is the underlying source of anxiety that has produced this need and demand for a new kind of tribalism, for a new something to belong to that tells you who you are, who the enemy is, and what everyone's relative place in society is. Um, a lot of what has happened with the way technology in particular has changed the way we work, the way fortunes are made, the way occupations are carried out, um, creates a lot of opportunities for people like me who are happy to move from thing to thing and from place to place and uh, who experience this as an opportunity and as a kind of liberation. But a lot of people don't experience these changes as an opportunity and a liberation. They experience them as a burden and they experience them as a, uh, as a very pr high price that they don't necessarily want to pay in exchange for the prosperity they realized. I have noticed a, what seems to be a kind of widespread loss of resilience among people, particularly young people. I know, I'm sure mm -hmm. that you are familiar with what was the topic of the day a day or two back, which was this story from uh, Northwestern, where the campus newspaper there had done what campus newspapers do. There was a protest of just Jeff Sessions uh, appearing at, on the campus. And they committed the unspeakably horrible crime of interviewing the protesters and publishing the interviews with photographs. And they may have even reached out to the people via their publicly available phone numbers in, in the directory. And God help them. They did some journalism. Yes. Right. Well, they'll never do that again because yeah. uh, the editorial board announced that they were very sorry and that they realized in doing this, they had done harm and traumatize people. And, you know, I think back, you know, th there's certainly a lot of talk about, you know, various things causing trauma or trauma, you know, PTSD what and whatnot. Uh, I, 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 I can't remember the name of the college, but there was a recent article from, you know, Amherst or one of these big names that showed that percentage of students who were uh, diagnosed or self-diagnosed, registered with the school as having some sort of mental illness had jumped from, you know, 4% to above 20% since 
2013, 14, something like that. Yeah. And of course, you know, I don't want to crap on people's life experiences, but I do think back to the folks, as you mentioned, you know, the folks who originally got the GI Bill who had come over after World War II probably had better claim to having experienced traumatic events than anything that the average person today could go through. But they seem to have a, you know, more resilience to that than folks today. So that's a long-winded question. But my question is, do you think that that ties in to the sorts of status anxieties and lack of uh, structure and meeting that you were talking about? Yeah, I think there's something to that. Um, you know, as a former college newspaper editor myself, I was embarrassed for those kids at Northwestern. They should just shut down that newspaper and get rid of the uh, records, fire everybody, burn the building down because it's useless. They don't want to do any journalism. And uh, these kids should go in to do something else in life. Like, I don't know, whatever you do with useless sex of whatever, like these kids are apparently. Um, yeah, I think about my own college newspaper experience where we were covering things like the siege at Waco with the Branch Davidians and the Oklahoma City bombing and things like that. <laughs> these, were, these were actually traumatic events. You know, these were not. Uh, and the Daily Texan at the University of Texas is a real newspaper, at least it was uh, back then. And, uh, you know, we had controversial speakers on campus. I remember covering Louis Farrakhan when he was down there. And, uh, you know, most of my colleagues were not conservatives like I was already at that point, but left wing, right wing, libertarian, anarchist, communist, whatever. It never came up that we shouldn't cover the news. No one ever thought, well, man, we should just not actually cover what's going on campus. We should do something else with our day. Right. Um, there are lots of things you can do on, on campus besides run a newspaper. But, yeah, these idiot children at Northwestern should just be flogged in the streets, I think. I think they were raised by defective parents in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, you can't, you know, you're 18, you're 19, you're 20, you're 21. You can't blame your parents forever. But you can blame their parents for a lot of this, that they just raised idiot children and didn't teach them how to, you know, deal with ordinary disappointments and discomfort and unhappiness in life. And the institutions they've been entrusted to by the parents who didn't want to actually raise them have uh, certainly contributed to that. Uh, part of it's being an excessively cautious culture, which comes from the excessively litigious nature of American society. But yeah, I mean, these kids are just inexplicable from my point of view. I don't see how you get that stupid and pathetic without just working at it somehow. And these aren't, you know, these kids probably, I mean, they can't really be idiots. They're at a reasonably good school and they've got to have some kind of, you know, function in gray matter somewhere. But um, goddamn, if I can explain it. The other thing, that, and this is from the other side of things, I have never heard of a protest where the protesters did not want media attention. Usually that's kind of the point of doing a public protest, why you do it on, you know, on the campus near the event as opposed to out in the woods somewhere where no one will see. Yeah, the reason when you see protests, whether it's in you know, Hong Kong or in Egypt or uh, elsewhere in the world, that the signs are in English. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there there are cases like in Hong Kong where people may not want to be, you know, have their name out there because they're afraid that the government is going to throw them in jail or whatever. But that does not seem to have been really the issue here, I don't think. Yeah, you can say a lot of things about Northwestern University, but it is not a single party police state that holds political prisoners and harvests their organs. Right. That, that we know of. <laughs> that we know of. You know, I mean, fraternity life gets out of hand every now and then to some of these schools, but I don't think it's quite there. These kids are not going to be able to handle life, not in the United States, not in the rest of the world, not in 
certainly not in journalism. Although I started to see this toward the end of my newspaper career where some of my younger employees, uh, you know, the much bemoaned millennials and uh, Gen Zers and such just had a really, really hard time dealing with things like uh, the fact that deadlines weren't negotiable. And you would say, this has to be in in three minutes. And they would say, well, I need 20 minutes. And you would say, well, that's not how this works. (laughs) You're unclear on the concept of deadline here. And um, yeah, the kind of culture of newspapers, I suppose, is changing too, where, I mean, you know, newspapers used to be sort of a a job where your boss yelled at you a lot. I don't think you can probably uh, do that anymore. I remember my first real editor, uh, she had a nickname for me that I probably can't say on this podcast, but um, if you tried that, you know, now, uh, if you behaved in anything like that, you would be just you know, sued out of existence and fired and all the rest of it. So, yeah, it's a it's a pretty panthified word world out there, I suppose. So I have a thought here, which is not my thought. Uh, this was said by someone else. So I, I was once a lawyer. To prepare myself for law school, I watched some of the classic, you know, legal movies and of course, you know, they, they presented law school as really rough, like the professors are going to chew you out and, you know, embarrass you, embarrass you, that sort of thing. And when I got there, it was not that at all. The professors very much treated the kids with uh, almost kid gloves. And when I asked one of my professors, were these movies inaccurate? He's like, no, that's exactly how it used to be. And I said, well, why, what changed? And his perspective was that when women started to be admitted in larger numbers, you know, you could chew out a guy and he'll just take it, you know, and be humiliated. Uh, But the female students would just break down in tears. And these, you know, old crotchety professor guys, they didn't know how to handle that. Right. And the whole system kind of collapsed. My experience as a newspaper editor was, was really the opposite where the most sort of sensitive and complaining people I had on my staff were young men. Most of the women I worked with seemed to um, more or less roll with things. I mean, we didn't work in an environment that was, um, you know, it wasn't a frat house. It wasn't scream and throw stuff and uh, and profane and things like that. But, you know, I was a fairly brusque editor, I guess, in some ways and, and pretty uh, pretty demanding with, with my employees. But um, the people who really seemed to have a problem with that were uh, mostly men between about 22 and 25. And of course, this would have been the 1990s, or not the 1990s, but the early, the early aughts. So, um, you know, adjust for uh, the calendar there. But uh, maybe that's just the uh, vagaries of experience, but that was mine. We've ventured a bit from the book, but I want to I go back to it a little. Maybe as a, uh, an exercise in definitions, you talk a little bit about a couple of terms, and I'm going to probably butcher these. One's German, and it's been years since I've taken German, Streitbare Demokratie, and then another term that I'm just going to completely guess on, Ochlocracy. Very good on both of those. I don't speak German or Greek, but um, I like to use uh, I like to use the words in their original language. I find that um, technology being what it is, publishing books is a little different. You don't really need to translate everything and put everything there on the page. People can kind of look stuff up as they go, and I just think it's fun to... Uh, to put those words out there. So Streitbar Demokraty is a um, German concept that dates to the 1930s, 1940s. It roughly translates as something like militant democracy. And it's a very important idea in Western European constitutional thought and legal thought. It is the principle that liberal democracies sometimes must behave in ways that are illiberal and undemocratic in order to defend the basic principles of liberal democracy itself. 
So this is the notion under which, say, Germany prohibits certain kinds of political parties or certain kinds of political speech uh, or books on the argument that they are an attack on liberalism and democracy itself. So normally this means neo-Nazi and communist parties of various kinds, um, but in theory it can apply to anything that is seen as basically a threat to the liberal democratic order. So this has uh, to do with some ideas that were published in, in the United States, mainly in the 1930s and 1940s, which were a response to the fact that not only in Germany, but also in Italy and in some other countries that had seen these nascent totalitarian movements, they had made use of liberal and democratic institutions um, from elections to free speech to the right to organize political parties and things like that. And the idea was that these had to be limited sometimes in order to prevent much greater and more significant and fundamental threats to the liberal democratic order. Now, this isn't an idea that I happen to agree with myself, but in the context of post-war Germany, when the thought of a revanchist Nazi movement was far from unthinkable, it made a reasonable amount of sense. And I think one of the unfortunate things about our politics right now is that everything is so tribalistic that people have a hard time saying sentences like that. But I don't agree with it, but I can understand where it came from. And it wasn't obviously irrational. It wasn't obviously rooted in ill will or the desire to dominate and exercise power, although it certainly invites that kind of thing. And this remains a very important idea in Europe. Again, this is why you can go to prison in Austria for selling someone a copy of an unauthorized book. Although as a matter of practice, they don't really do a lot of that. But these are the laws on the books. And it's true to a lesser extent in Canada and some places like that. These places don't have our First Amendment ideas, our traditional free speech culture. And what we're seeing in the American context is the importation of this idea of militant democracy combined with a very cynical attempt to what I call defining danger down. So um, in Germany, they will prohibit uh, Nazi parties from organizing. They will prohibit parties that have an explicitly anti-Semitic agenda from communicating that agenda in public. Um, these things can be suppressed. They will prohibit the sale of books like Mein Kampf. In the United States, we want to do it for, well, Milo Yiannopoulos or Ann Coulter wants to speak at Berkeley and has been invited to do so by the college Republicans. And this has to be stopped because this puts us two tweets away from the Holocaust. And that, of course, is silly and indefensible. It trivializes the actual experience of totalitarianism in Europe and elsewhere in the world. And it also ends up being used as a cynical cudgel uh, for the exercise of naked political power in the American context. So because we don't have a history of something like Nazism, uh, Nazism, as Jane Orlinger would, would tell me to say, because that's actually the right pronunciation, or, you know, a Stalinist uh, communist government or something like that, um, we don't really have a context for exercising militant democracy in that sense. The closest thing we have to it, of course, would have been slavery and Jim Crow and, and, and what came along with those things. And I think that that opens up an interesting discussion about taking a more sympathetic view of people who want to get rid of things like Confederate monuments and things like that. Again, it's not a point of view that I necessarily agree with, but it's understandable, I think. But the idea that Ann Coulter should be treated the same way as Heinrich Himmler uh, when she's trying to give a speech at a college campus, of course, is just absurd and indefensible. And if you look at it closely, the people who are making these arguments, for the most part, don't really seem to take them very seriously either. It's just a way to exercise power. So minus 
concentration camps minus a history of a police state, that sort of thing. Uh, the idea of militant democracy as it's, as it's practiced in Europe is, I think, really quite dangerous in the American context. And it is something that's basically at odds with our you know, Anglo-Protestant liberal tradition. Right. I, and actually, as, as I was reviewing your book last night, getting ready for, for our conversation, uh, I sort of was kind of familiarizing myself. And this morning I wake up and there was a, sort of ironically, there's a, a piece from The Atlantic someone named Daniel Allen uh, wrote a piece called The Road from Serfdom. And uh, I don't know if you had a chance to see that piece, but it was a call for unity. And it was essentially the idea of, without quoting the, the piece, essentially saying that we shouldn't have any tolerance for anything other than unity. So it seemed to me that this was a, a, a in almost a genteel description of uh, this concept of stripe democracy, it seems like it was actually sort of articulating a, a similar concept. Yeah, calls to unity are always suspect in my mind. Um, I guess I should say my experience with the Atlantic suggests that there is some groupthink over there and some hysteria, <laughs> and uh, they are not maybe uh, the most thoughtful people sometimes when it comes to those kinds of questions. Um, although I think it's a very good magazine and I enjoy reading it. I haven't read the piece in question, so I can't comment specifically on it. Um, I'm always just uh, made nervous by calls to unity. I know what unity is for. I don't know why you need it as a country. Um, we have a society in which people get to exercise a great deal of autonomy for a reason. Uh, typically, if I'm in a room full of people all facing the same direction and chanting, and it's not in church, I think that's pretty weird. And I'm a little, uh, a little jinked out by it, I guess. But unity is kind of like pragmatism and lots of other things that we talk about, which is it's, it's just a cloak for narrow political and ideological preferences almost always. So no one ever says we should have unity and therefore I'm going to support Donald Trump, who I didn't support before. Or on the other side, well, we should have national unity. And therefore, when Elizabeth Warren's elected in 2020, I'm going to really be on board and uh, try to do what I can do to make sure that the country stands unified with the government and all that. We have a really poisonous, this will be my next nonfiction book, I guess, a really poisonous and weird idea of government as this strange sacrosanct thing instead of just being an instrument, which is what it is. Government is not the nation. It's not society. It's not the people. It's not love. It's not goodness. It's not an avenue of moral expression or anything else. It's just a way of getting certain things done. It's how we fill potholes. It's how we man the border stations. It's how we staff the military and run the courts and do some other very important things in society. But it's just a convenience, um, as, as Hobbes described it. It's just a, uh, it's just an instrument. But because we've got a decline in other sources of value and meaning and uh, transcendental relationship and such, people have turned to government as being the embodiment and a venue of. Um, these sort of spiritual longings. And that's why we get this crazy, crazy attitude about, well, you know, we have to have national unity under a strong president and state, which is, ugh, it's just the grossest, most primitive, backward, tribalistic uh, nonsense. And it's just really, again, it's very hard to, for me to understand how such an intelligent, productive, creative, dynamic society has managed to regress so quickly to such an infantile and backward, superstitious, and uh, just sand-poundingly stupid view of the world. Well, but that also leads me to another question that uh, you you also described, and you, you just talked about the government, but you also in your book described the corporation, the American yeah. corporation, as now possibly the most important institution in our in our in our common life. 
but you also described it as fragile and provocatively weak. Yeah, uh, I think that was a, actually a pretty core piece of your argument. Uh, expound on that a bit. Yeah, we think of corporations as being these almighty, eternal things. I think it's it comes from science fiction, really. You know, it's the Tyrell Corporation and uh, and all the other great um, evil corporate dystopias that we get from science fiction. American businesses and businesses around the world are actually increasingly short-lived, uh, fragile, tenuous uh, partnerships between capital and uh, human effort and labor and intelligence. Uh, in the 1950s, 1960s, the uh, average life expectancy of a major corporation, like a Fortune 500 company, was something along the lines of 75 or 80 years. And I think now it's 15, something like that. And it's been declining, declining rapidly. So big companies that you would think could stand up for themselves are really easy to push around. Like Nike has shown itself really easy to push around. The NBA is really easy to push around. NBA is not a corporation, I guess. Is the NBA a nonprofit like the NFL is? But essentially, you know, it's, a, it's an industry trade group. Right. And, um, you know, we've seen this with other companies that are, you know, Disney is one, that are really easy for a relatively small group of people using social media as a kind of amplifier to make themselves seem bigger and more important than they are. Uh, to, to push them around and get them to um, refuse to stand up for their own interests and their own, uh, their own uh, rights and their own values. But we particularly see this in very large companies where you've got essentially, you know, independent fiefdoms within the companies. So when you're a big company like, say, Google, and you throw off just tons of money, you get a sort of, you know, form of corporate gout. You get a lot of people who aren't really very core to the company's mission, and uh, but they sort of accrete in places like human resources and marketing and community relations and these sort of, uh, you know, the women's studies department of corporate life, essentially. And um, that is where you get these really, you know, hysterical, conformist, politically charged HR policies and the idea that um, organizing a meeting at four o'clock rather than at 345 is sexist and racist or whatever the, you know, strange things they come up with. Uh, these companies are essentially victims of their own success. And so they get these internal constituencies that know they're not really very core to the productive mission of the company. And they know that in a serious downturn or a reversal of business interest, they probably would be the first to go because the ones who create the least value. Um, so they come up with a political justification for themselves and a political mission for themselves, which is separate and distinct from the actual business of the company. Big companies are a lot like big government in the sense that they uh, operate in a way that is bureaucratic and political and, and highly stratified, stratified and highly sclerotic uh, in many cases. And so I think that um, university life is, is corporate life in its larval form, and uh, it's a mutant version of life in a government bureaucracy. I think that all of these big institutions end up showing similar characteristics to some extent. Let me ask you this. Do you think with unions being weaker that the left is organizing more through corporations themselves? Yeah, you know, the left always presented itself as the alternative and the check on corporate power until they got some corporate power. Then they decided they really like having corporate power and they wanted <laughs> to punish their political enemies. So it used to be the corporate power, corporate involvement in politics and social affairs and things like that was evil capitalism or paternalism or whatever it was denounced as the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Now it's, you know, social consciousness. It's it's doing the right thing. It's having stakeholders rather than shareholders and, and, and all the rest of that nonsense. 
So basically, it's, you know, when the corporation is doing your bidding, it's a good thing in its social consciousness. When it's doing someone else's uh, bidding, following someone else's political agenda, it's objectionable, it's money in politics, it's all the evil things we've all been taught to hate and fear and loathe. The left, like any other political tendency, will use power where it can find that power. And uh, it used to be that people on the left thought of themselves as being outsiders in the corporate world, and to a certain extent they were. Uh, but corporations have grown uh, so large. Uh, profits in the last 20, 25 years have been been so fat, particularly in finance and in the technology world, that it actually enables a lot of tomfoolery and nonsense and shenanigans that, that wouldn't have happened, say, in the heyday of U.S. Steel. Um, not that U.S. Steel was more effectively administered, but it just had less uh, it had less of a margin to, to play around with in politics and policy and social activism and those sorts of things. I think in your book, you describe the, the social media mob as an assault on the individual mind. And then you write that we need free minds now more than ever. Yeah. What did you mean about the we need free minds more than ever? What's in your mind there? You know, we can only really think and understand things individually. You know, we don't think as a herd or as a tribe or as a hive. We do a lot of things that way, but we can't really think that way. We can't really analyze that way. And the problem with democracy is that democracy really relies on conversation. That is how we go about figuring out our social problems. And it's also how we go about negotiating stable compromises with sufficient buy-in that you get a socially workable response to social problems. So when you can't have a conversation because you can't deal with one another as individuals, but only as representatives and mascots of warring and rivalrous tribal groups, then you can't actually have that basic democratic conversation, which is how you go about trying to develop socially workable solutions to social problems. So when politics devolves into what it's become right now, which is just a status game, it's just a question of mascots, it's black hats and white hats, good guys and bad guys, cowboys and Indians, having really very little to do with any underlying policy questions, then you don't make any progress on developing solutions to the things that we actually need government to work on. There's not a lot that we really need the central government to do, but the things that we do really need the central government to do are very, very important. Societies, particularly complex modern societies like ours, with a lot of dynamism, with global trade, with worldwide capital flows, demographic and social changes that are moving more quickly than people actually understand, I think, for the most part, and are enmeshed in systems that are so complex that their behavior isn't predictable, even in principle, then you need to have some stability and predictability in the national policy environment. And we're not having these throwdown, weeping, social breakdowns. I can't talk to my uncle at Thanksgiving because we're mad about the question of whether the top income tax rate is going to be 35.5%, 37.5%. These issues have to do with the substitution of government for God, the substitution of government for family, the substitution of politics for social life and civic life that um, turns all of this into contests about meaning, personal status, uh, and who we are and what our identity is, which is a really dumb way to litigate that stuff, I think. But when you don't have art, you don't have culture, you don't have much in the way of actual education, you have fewer and less robust uh, family lives and marriages, 
you have less religion, less church attendance, less civil society participation. Politics, as hideous as it is, it's what's left over for a lot of people. So I guess where I was kind of going was when you make this comment about we need free minds more than ever, and then you read your final chapter of the book. I'm kind of curious what you want the reader to take mm-hmm. away. Uh, Josiah may have been a, a lawyer for a while, but I'm, I'm still a, a practicing lawyer. So I'm, I tend to be, I think, somewhat practical. What What do you want the reader to take away? Do you want them to uh, write their congressman, maybe Senator Hawley, about breaking up big tech? Or do you want them to just stop being an ass online? What are you hoping that people will do differently? Well, I'm hoping they'll learn something. You know, this isn't an Aesop's fable with uh, moral at the end of it. And, uh, and it's not a political agenda with a plan of action attached to it. What I try to do in my work and all my work in this book and in my journalism and, and, and the other things I do is I want to help people to understand what's actually happening in the world. Mm-hmm. And when people understand what's actually happening in the world, when they're actually in command of the basic facts of what's going on, then they can do a better job coming up with solutions and outcomes and responses that are consistent with their own values. So, you know, people don't need me to tell them, well, don't use Twitter, don't use Facebook. Although really, if you ask me, I'll tell you, don't use Twitter, don't use Facebook, don't use Instagram and all the rest of it. Uh, People ask me, I'll tell them, you know, you should probably get married and go to church and have some kids and you'll be happier. Uh, People don't ask me this stuff a lot and that's, that's fine. Uh, People have to figure out things for themselves. But, um, what people should understand, I think, is it's what happened, what's happening on Twitter and Facebook, on talk radio, on the cable news networks, looks like a political conversation, and it sounds like a political conversation, and it kind of smells like a political conversation, but it's not actually a political conversation. It is a status game and a kind of group therapy exercise, which is about things that are only tangentially related to politics and political preferences, political tribes, political party, political identity is being used as a substitute and a proxy for other things in life that people lack. So what I hope people would do is um, read this and understand that if participation in things like Twitter, participation in things like Facebook and political discussions anyway, there's all sorts of other stuff that goes on on Facebook and Twitter and whatnot that's fine, I suppose, although I don't know, I don't use those things. Um, but if they find being involved in these conversations and the way that they're involved in these conversations not only doesn't produce the ends they want to, but leaves them personally feeling unhappy and unsatisfied, more anxious, more upset than they were than they went into it, there's a reason for that. And that reason actually is something that's fairly easy to understand if they will take the time to understand it. All right. Well, let's turn to a potentially lighter, happier topic. You have you have the uh, cover story <laughs> National Review this month, and it's it's about the uh, hi- National Reviews every two weeks. It's fortnightly, not monthly. Ah, uh, sorry. Uh, so it's about the high profile conversion of Kanye West. Yeah. Um, you recently released an album called Jesus Is King. Tell us a little bit about your article and what's the cultural impact uh, of of this high profile conversion. Yeah, you know, converts are funny, and I know this because I'm I'm one myself. Um, I converted when I was in my 20s, which now seems like a very long time ago, and I hate to think about how long ago it actually was. Uh, so Kanye, you know, is someone who comes from a Christian background, and this is not his first foray into, uh, you know, Christian messaging. Uh, you know, 15 years ago, I guess, is when he recorded Jesus Walks, which was a song that was surprising to some people and controversial in some ways, I suppose. 
Uh, but he's put out this album that's an entirely you know Christian album, although it's a very short one, I guess. It's maybe half an hour long, something like that. Um, it's not exactly, you know, St. Augustine. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's still Kanye West being Kanye West, but I think that he is sincere and uh, energetic and fairly plain spoken about his belief and his faith and his conversion experience. And I think that's all good and to be welcomed. I think that um, Christians like political conservatives are so desperate for celebrity advocates that they tend to glom onto people too quickly, too energetically, and too tightly. And uh, Kanye is, of course, among other things, a crazy person, as we all know. I mean, <laughs> whatever you think about his music, whatever you think about whatever else he does in life, and I, I admire his music. I think he's really quite good at what he does, um, although I'm by no means an expert in, uh, in his particular brand of music. I think he's a clever writer a lot of the times and kind of an engaging personality, but he's also you know, sort, of, sort of a nutcase. And he'll be the first one, of course, to admit that, as he does. He's actually, in many ways, refreshingly honest and direct about his own problems and his own issues. So he is someone who's going to invariably do something embarrassing, of course, in a very short period of time. We all know he's going to. And the problem for Christians, I think, is that if you go investing too much in celebrities, then you become a creature of celebrity and you become vulnerable to the vicissitudes of celebrity. And celebrity is a very funny and unpredictable thing that doesn't work very much like religion does. It doesn't work very much like religious faith does. So I hope that Christians will um, be kind and enthusiastic and uh, and uh, understanding uh, of Kanye, especially when he goes out and screws up and embarrasses them, which he's going to. Uh, Christians are called to bear one another's burdens, and now Kanye is one of them, and we will <laughs> have to bear that burden. And as crosses go, I don't imagine Kanye is really all that heavy uh, a load to uh, to carry. So, um, yeah, I wrote a pretty long essay about Kanye and his album and his uh, religious faith and the people he's involved in. Uh, Kanye's version of Christianity is rooted in a pretty intellectually rigorous and strict one. You know, he's not one of these guys who's joined some goo-goo uh, celebrity church that says, you know, go out and feel good and be happy and, and all that. He's, um, you know, being instructed by some pretty religiously and intellectually rigorous uh folks who are part of a pretty, pretty interesting, uh, reformed capital R, or I guess, broadly speaking, Calvinist, uh, tradition. So it's interesting to see him embracing that and not some more, you know, pop, uh, no strings, no judgment, uh, version of Christianity. And it'll be interesting to see, uh, see where this leads. And he's also just an entertaining character. So it was a fun essay to write. This week, I'm going to the National Convention of the Flat Earth Society. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, you should ask them whether they think Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. <laughs> That's the thing now, right? Like people go on CNN and they talk about tax reform and they say, oh, by the way, Epstein wasn't. That's right. Yeah. 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 But, you know, I would, I would be interested if like the flat earth people would be like, yeah, so, you know, the earth is flat. But there are some things that even I can't believe. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, the Nutty Times. I take that back, though. I should, I should uh, clarify here because apparently, like every other uh, religion in life, there's, there's, there are factional disputes, and so there's the Flat Earth Society, which is distinct, actually, I guess, from the group that I'm going to go see, and they disown these other flat earthers. So the people I'm going to go spend time with apparently are the less respectable flat earth people. 
Uh-huh. So, um, but they're the only ones who will have me, you know. So they're they're the uh, the Missouri Synod flat earthers, not the uh, not the right, yeah. liberal Lutheran flat earthers. No offense to anyway, liberal uh, uh, Lutheran friends, but what's the uh, the Monty Python joke where it's the uh, people's Judean front versus right. the people front of Judea? Right, right, right. Right, yeah, exactly. Well, I have yeah. I, I have one final question for you. So sure. uh, the uh, I think your author's note said that you you stole the title from Ayn Rand, but it, it occurs to me, uh, particularly with today's news, that the smallest minority might be a good book uh, title for uh, Mark Sanford. Um, <laughs> I think Kamala Harris is pulling down there in Sanford numbers too. <laughs> All right. Uh, any final questions or comments? You mentioned at some point which that you know your next nonfiction book was going to be such and such. Does that imply that you were working on a, a fiction book? Mm. Yes. Um, I've been trying to finish it up for a few months, and hopefully it'll be done at uh, some point in the very near future. All right. See, I, I listened closely to your wording. Oh, yeah. so, all right. We, we broke some news there. Yes. <laughs> Actually, I did break some news. I don't think I've mentioned that really. So, yeah. yeah, I've written, I always wanted to do some fiction writing. I wrote some very bad novels when I was a youngster, which thankfully were never published. I don't know if anyone's going to want to read fiction by me, but uh, we'll give it a shot. See what they think. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. It's always a good time. Yeah.